This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. All right. Hello, and welcome to Reversing Climate Change. I'm Asa Kamer, uh, the producer of our other podcast, Carbon Removal Newsroom. And I'm joined by my co-host and frequent collaborator, Siobhan Montoya-Lavender. Hi, Shiv. How are you? Hey, doing well. Thanks. Awesome. And so we have a really exciting show today. We're talking to someone who's spreading CDR around the world and winning awards for it. Uh, his name is David Hughes. He's the Huck Chair in Global Food Security at Penn State University the director of USAID, the USAID Innovation Lab on current and emerging threats to crops, and the founder of the project we're going to be talking about today called Plant Village. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm Grant. Uh, it's lovely to be with you. Wonderful. And I was seeing on your Twitter that it looks like you've been in several um, far-flung locations recently. Where are, we, uh, where are you calling us from today? Well, I'm in central Pennsylvania now. Uh, last week, I was in D.C. and San Francisco. Wonderful. All right, great. So I'm going to give just a quick intro for our listeners um, about your program, and then we can get into it. So um, the XPRIZE uh, released a booklet with this month with information on all their milestone winners, of which Plant Village is one. So you guys- Woo-hoo, free congratulations. Yeah, that's a really big deal. They, uh, Plant Villages, so they they published a book uh, or a short um, uh, program with information about all the, the winners who each won a million dollars to continue their program. Um, so sort of an introductory uh, award. I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar, but Plant Village is a global uh, public good at Penn State University that works with smallholder farms across the world, leveraging its best-in-class AI cloud system and ground team to help smallholder farmers adapt to climate change. Uh, They reach over 14 million farmers a week in nine countries with climate change advice and help farmers, uh, farms adapt to climate change. At the same time, uh, they leverage the millions of farms uh, reach through the AI powered carbon capture cubes to mitigate climate change. Um, And so what they do is they use, uh, or one, one aspect of their program is uh, helping farmers plant trees uh, on their farms and then you converting some of the biomass from those trees to uh, biochar and some of it to lumber. And they also have an app to help identify um, plant diseases, which I was just checking out on the app store. And I don't really have a good use for it, so I didn't download it, but um, I thought it was cool that I could check that out. So David, can you, uh, just to start us off, tell us a little bit about um, how it's been going with Plant Village since you all won the X Prize Milestone Award last year? Yeah, so Plant Village is a 
a concept to democratize the world's access to knowledge for smallholder farmers, because that's exactly what we should be doing. We need to be helping people around the world grow more food. It is something that has arisen out of um, my long-term history as a rainforest ecologist. So every time I come out of a rainforest in the tropics, I walk into a farm decimated by diseases. And we've been building up Plant Village over the last 10 years, and it's been very successful. And then we really pivoted to climate change in 2019, um, predominantly because of the large cyclones coming into East Africa that, that pulled all the moisture out of Kenya and Uganda, leading to crop failure. And then what we're seeing now across East Africa is the sixth successive drought. So it's climate change all the time, everywhere, unfortunately. And so in 2021 and 2022, I really kind of wanted to go into fundraising for Plant Village. And thankfully, the university gave me an endowed chair that allowed me some sort of seed capital. So Plant Village itself started off with seed capital. We started off with $120,000 in investment, um, and we've raised over $33 million from the public purse. And, and then the part of it for carbon, we've raised money from Cisco Foundation and now XPRIZE. And, and this has been great. It's really brought a lot of attention because it turns out that a lot of what we focus on, climate change adaptation, turns out to be the, the, the flip side of the coin of what we would do for mitigation because carbon capture is a surface area problem, whether that's that's a, a leaf on a tree in, in springtime in Pennsylvania where I am, or it, it's capturing carbon in a big machine that puts it in a rock in Iceland. It's all surface area. But the, the best solution we have today are plants and, and, and turning those plants into durable forms of carbon. We can do that better across the tropics because that's the place where plants grow the fastest. So it's been really exciting. It's been great to have the attention from the milestone prize we won. We also, in fact, won the, the student prize as well. So we're one of only two groups who have won both prizes. Wow. And, and then we were there in San Francisco meeting other teams and, and, and exchanging strategies and solutions of how we all you know, collectively get to a better world. Nice. I got to say, I'm not surprised you've been working on this for 10 years because you've got drones, you've got an app, you've got boots on the ground, you've got satellites. It seems like a lot going on. How did you develop this and how has it been to manage all these moving parts? Yeah, so developing is really from a sense of anger um, that we just, <laughs> you know, I, I came to the U.S. I, I was um, at a, I was working on rainforest ecologists. Uh, I was in the, my background is on ant behavior. If any of your listeners have been watching The Last of Us, that's based upon the research I've done over the last 20 years on fungi manipulating ant behavior. So I was very happy as a rainforest ecologist, and but then became increasingly upset and annoyed that we'd walk out of a, a forest into a farm and, and knowledge that could help farmers wasn't available. And then I, I came across, I was at Harvard at the time, and I came across this land-grant system of universities that the United States has constructed over the last 170 years. And it's it's a unique construction in higher education. It's to, to have applied research for a global public good. And I said, that's a great idea, but why is it not globally in public? Why is it that a farmer in, in a cocoa farm in Ghana doesn't access it? And so that's why I conceived of Plant Village to understand that the phone, the smartphone is going to get better and better and better over time because of Moore's law. And so we can have AI 
in a phone answering questions or, or, or diagnosing problems. And now we've all seen the grand explosion in AI that's happened in the last two or three months. It's all on our yeah, radar. Yeah, for sure. But I, I was thinking back in 2012 that, that we would have computer vision AI being as good as humans. And in fact, it is. Our AI is twice as good as humans in diagnosing plant diseases. And so that's where plant villages come from. How do we operate in, in, in 10 countries now with boots on the ground or 60 countries with the United Nations? Um, we, we, we use a radical decentralization system. And so everybody's in charge and no one's in charge. In 2019, we got money from Eric Schmidt, of, formerly of Google, that came with uh, really good instruction on using their objectives and key results framework. Um, I got a, a, a director of operations, Annalise Keys at the time, who, who's just sort of running this operation and then training people how to do that, cloning herself. So we have lots of people like her in various countries. So we just give young people huge amounts of authority and ability to change the world. And it turns out when you do that, they work <laughs> very hard because they have more skin in the game. Um, so that's how Plant Village works. Oh, I like that philosophy. That's Thank amazing. And, and so it sounds like you guys uh, work on a wide variety of issues related to smallholder farmers and the sort of carbon angle is something that does apply because you're capturing car carbon with biochar, but it's not what why you set out. You didn't start this, I mean, or correct me if I'm wrong, it just sounds like you didn't start this whole program to capture a bunch of carbon as much as you could, but found that there's this nice synergy with biochar where it's both adaptation and mitigation and are kind of putting it into your bigger umbrella of programs. Is that kind of right? Yeah, so we're people and planet. Uh, a lot of the other groups are just planet. Um, and, and people and planet is necessary because, because people are more important. The, the, the planet will be totally fine without us. Um, uh, it, it will just belch and move on. Um, as a rainforest ecologist who, who has worked on this for a long time, it'll be fine. Um, but I think necessarily we want to focus on not having hundreds of millions of people being food insecure. Uh, so that's where we focused on. But despite our success, and I mentioned that we raised a lot of money from the public purse, $33 million so far, the amount of money required is hundreds of billions of dollars. And over the last five years, we've been failing miserably in global food security. Uh, we've been decreasing um, our successes, and we're seeing now as many as 828 million people are food insecure. And this is just going to get worse under climate change. So, so we invented agriculture 10,000 years ago, and no human since the invention of agriculture has had to grow under the current climate of 1.2 degrees Celsius. And we're guaranteed to get to 2.5 or 2.6. And so everything from this moment forward will be inventing how to grow enough food for an increasing population. And so that requires lots of investment, lots of research. And I don't think the public purse is up to it. In fact, I think it, it's failing in many ways. So this is where I think the capital markets are important because it turns out that Africa or our countries in Africa and farmers in those countries have something which the rest of the world wants, a place to capture and store carbon. And so we could see a massive wealth transfer in the billions from mm -hmm. Europe and, 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 and US and elsewhere into Africa. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we need in order to raise a whole generation of people out of poverty and at the same time, pull down, reliably pull down and store a gigaton of carbon per year by 2030, starting in 2030. And Can we I mean, define, oh, go ahead, Isa. No, no, go ahead, Siobhan. 
just can we define smallholder farmers for our listeners and kind of paint a picture of like who's actually on the ground doing this work? Yeah. So typically a person on less than two hectares. Uh, uh, and um, in our case, it's, it's oftentimes a person who might have an acre or half an acre of land. Um, it's, Plant Village has historically focused on uh, very, very low income farmers who might be on less than $2.50 a day. In some regions, it's less than $1.90 a day. Uh, so an incredibly low level subsistence farming, living living in an analog world, um, oftentimes lo very low literacy, oftentimes illiterate, and predominantly women farmers. About 83% of the farmers we initially focused on were women farmers. So these are, are people who are at the, the vagaries of, of the weather and the system. So they're every single time they 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 sow some seeds or taking a huge gamble. And yeah. so the likelihood of, of getting money is very, very low. So these are subsistence farmers who are oftentimes on the edge and, and their fields are collapsing and they're increasingly going to be collapsing. What's it like when you approach farmers? How do, how do you like first engage with farmers like who maybe are struggling with their farms collapsing, as you said? What what is that like touch point like and how do you find the reception normally is? Yeah, yeah. So it can be angry. Um, so, so we have a lot of NGOs in this space, or a lot of government in this space, who are, who haven't been effective. And so the ang the anger is rightful um, and, and proper. And so Annalise, uh, whom I mentioned before, has recounted um, a story of one of our farmers, uh, Madam Consolata from Western. Kenya being super angry towards Annalise when she came to the farm. Oh, not another NGO coming here, taking stuff and never coming yeah. back. And that's just, it's just extractive. I mean, Africa has been the story of extraction for 400 years, starting with people all the way now to data. Um, but we stick around. We, we stick around and we tell people that we either know the answer or don't know the answer. We employ local young people that we call the Plant Village Dream Team. Um, mm -hmm. So these are young people from the local communities. In fact, um, Fate Aroni is, is uh, Madame Consolata's daughter, and she's our gender specialist. So should we hired her. She's a, the daughter of one of our early farmers. And now, you know, four years later, I was in a meeting with, with Madame Consolata in, in, a, in a conference, and she was there, and Elise was there. And, and, you know, because you go there every single day, you build up that trust. So what Plant Village has at its core is trust. But oftentimes the relationships start off hard because we're making up for the mistakes and the wrongs of, of previous groups and having to um, you know, do that uh, effectively and, and in a transparent, trusted way. And you, th this is a segue to like one of the questions I most wanted to ask you, but you use the word extractive about the you know, West relationship to Africa over the last 400 years. And there's obviously been a, a lot of exposés, research, criticism of the way that carbon markets have interacted with both Africa, but also a number of other like tropical and tropical parts of the world, developing nations with regard to forestry, with regard to, um, you know, uh, animal or livestock shepherds, um, the right word isn't coming to me, but, you know, basically changing the way people live in order to generate carbon credits which on paper might look good, but then have possibly detrimental impact on the people that the communities that are actually producing the carbon credit, so to speak. And so the way you guys do it is, I would say different than that. And it seems like the both the decentralized approach that you're taking um, and the way that people get paid directly rather than having like a, a carbon middleman 
Um, and I'm kind of kind of a leading question here, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because it does seem like you're trying to move away from like an extract extractive model, so to speak, of the way some carbon offset programs have worked. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we're partnered with Biochar Life, and, and they've been doing this for a number of years. They come from a charity called Warm Heart Foundation, which has been trying to optimize the certification process by which farmers can get paid for capturing and storing carbon. Um, so, so we're trying to take that model and bring it into the local communities where we already exist. So if you think of Northern Kenya, for example, which is largely pastoralist communities dominated by Samburu, Rendil, and Turkana tribes, we don't do anything without full tribal buy-in from the, 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 uh, both the, the tribal chiefs as well as the village elders. We, we make sure that when we're recruiting people to turn an invasive weed into biochar, for example, we're, we're being democratic and taking people from all the various uh subgroups um a huge amount of of engagement with the community we we would not have a plant village team member from western kenya go to that location although one person melodine jeptu is in charge of, of the, the 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 groups we'd have to make sure we have a a person like fofin or rashid from the the, the local groups in Marsabit, for example, to engage. And so we're highly, highly conscious of, of strife and conflict within the communities towards uh, you know, neo-colonial issues or even between tribes. Um, so, so we want to make sure that a lot of time is just spent engaging, um, working collectively, and then making sure that people see the benefits immediately. So, so they're getting paid for the work they did today. For carbon capture, or 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 if we make biochar, which of course is just this wonder, phenomenal tool for holding water in the soil, we're putting that into the ground and planting vegetables. We're not exporting it to Europe or even to a, in, you know a few miles away. It's going directly where you can see the benefit. And and then, what I would like to see increasingly is is local co-ops. So so can uh, can we build up these carbon capture communities? Let's say. It's 100 pastoralists or 100 farmers. They're all contributing to a central pyrolysis system, and they all collectively own shares in the system. So any profits coming in is then dispersed in, in addition to the payment directly. Because we have to also be mindful that not everybody owns land or has access to land. So there's a lot of, particularly uh, in places like Tanzania, there's people who don't have ownership, but we do want the whole community to benefit. I mean, I think this is the, the great lesson in western civilization the greater the inequality the greater the unhappiness so so if we can make sure that everybody's getting you know the right and equitable share of the profits then then we can um we can do well and this is just a a, a, a sensible business strategy so so everybody's going to run out of resources in in getting to the gigaton whether the resources are silicon to have renewable energy or the resources are plants to capture carbon or even rocks, everybody's going to run out of resources. And the people who control the resources will be the ones who prevent access to them. And that's the community members. And if the community members are not on board from day one, then it's very easily going to be the case that we, we were going to have a problem. Um, and so yeah. this is two reasons why we want to do it. One for decency and the second for expediency. This, this again sounds like a long project. And again, I'm not surprised you've been doing this for a long time because these, these sorts of public outreach and community-based initiatives take a lot of effort and time. How do you feel, 
How has that worked in context with something like the X Prize, which is very you know time specific, or or other funding mechanisms which might want to see you know immediate results? How has that been in terms of working on time? Yeah, I think it, I think you're very correct. I think, I, but I think it's our job to educate the funders. Um, the funders oftentimes haven't got a clue what they want to do. Um, <laughs> not entirely clear that Elon Musk knows what he wants to do on a minute-to-minute basis. <laughs> um, so so I think it, it's our job to say, look, we've tried various neoliberal policies of shareholder value value maximization, and it hasn't worked. It, it's given us the problem we have. So, so maybe what we want to do with a planet-sized problem is have a planet-sized solution. And, and that means engaging the people on the planet to work effectively. And maybe it's going to take 40 years and we start now and, and and we play the long game like Simon Sinek would say and others we just want to play the long game and and if you want to be part of that if you want to invest in something which is going to you know manifestly change both the planet and the people who live on it then be on board but if you want a short-term value maximization and a tweet maybe we're not the best partners for you and I think that helps that we can say that because we're sort of more mature in, in that regard because we've had success but I think that donors need to be educated um, um, and helped to spend their money uh, correctly. Yeah, agreed. I would love to talk a little bit about, since you brought it up, it is the hot topic right now. Let's talk about AI. And let's talk about when did you start planning on AI? Were you early to this AI boom? What do you see as the values and risks of using AI in this situation? Um, and how has it been received? So. I started personally in 2011 when I was thinking of this because I wanted to have my colleague, Harry Evans, who's just this walking encyclopedia of knowledge of plant diseases, who's, you know, older, 65, 70, um, have his brain in the phone because unfortunately we're not making people like him ever again, you know, and, and we need people like him to grow food and, and to know how to do A, B, or C. So, so I, that was the initial view of Plant Village even before, for some of your technical listeners, before things like TensorFlow came along in 2014 at, at Google, and we had an NDA with Google before then. And so we patiently built it up over time and, and very successfully, uh, Pete McCloskey is the lead AI engineer in the project, but we're just kind of expanding it. But very simply, it has to do what a human would do in that case. It's, it's artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence without human intelligence is just artificial. So we have to make sure that the human is there every step of the way. If we're going to get a, a machine to diagnose a problem on a crop or how a tree grows or, or whether biochar is A, B, or C, it has to be done. And that means the data has to be open and transparent and how the data was trained. And that's where the association with the university is important. We want to make sure that we have all of the data available. If we say something is, is this versus that, what is the underlying algorithm of that? How can everybody examine it? Unfortunately, there's a lot of groups out there who want to build walls around their proprietary technology. And the problem with that is Theranos. Um, because, because all of those companies are going to be invested in, just like Theranos, the drug company, which does those little mm -hmm. tricks, but we're invested in. And, and, and then the incentive is to overstate the competency of the algorithm. I mean, it's just so basic. OpenAI was exactly the same thing. They wanted to have AI for the global public good, they didn't. Now they have investors. Now it's closed. And yeah, it's an ironic name now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So so we were very early on to it. And, and it, it's just helping. But in terms of the carbon markets, I actually think it's it's critically important because people say a gigaton without understanding exactly what that means. But if that is multiple millions of tons of carbon dioxide captured and stored every day, 
then yeah. you need to make sure the verification system can operate at that scale. And you want to make sure you avoid two things. One is bias and the other is noise. So, so maybe you don't measure trees like I would, or I don't measure trees like you do, or, or carbon capture or weathering. So we just have a bias between people. That's normal. And the other is noise. Both of us don't want to work at 12 o'clock when we're ready for lunch uh, compared to nine o'clock. So, so the data quality is subject to bias and noise. AI doesn't have either of those things. It doesn't have bias because there's a single set of eyes across the entire continent of Africa. And the noise is that it, it can constantly work all the time. So I think the AI is great because it can, it can deal with a million tons a day and every single gram is captured and stored in the same way. And if we make sure that that data is transparent, then the global community can be assured that it's done in the correct way so nobody owns the algorithm it, it's a public good for everybody so what's the current state of your um of the technology that lets farmers use ai or their phones to access funding for sequestering carbon does that is that happening now and then what is the sort of goal like what will the final program look like yeah, so we're uh, partnered with Biochar Life, and, and they've been really great uh, leaders in this space, I, I really feel. Um, and with them, uh, we're, we're refining how the end buyer wants to see it. So we're working with Carbon Future, who have a contract with Biochar Life for 100,000 tons of CO2 to be delivered from smallholder farmers uh, across a variety of countries. And then Biochar Future, sorry, um, uh, carbon for good. Oh, so many, too many names here. Um, <laughs> they all have the word carbon in them. <laughs> they really do. Uh, carbon future. Um, in that case, they they will work with their end buyer, which is Microsoft or whomever, to figure this out because we need to make sure that the ultimate customer is happy with what they're buying. And so, in this case, the the, the farmer can use it today. Um, both for what's called artisan general or artisan pro. This is the system whereby you dig a hole in the ground, you make biochar, or you use a kiln system. Um, that's with the European biochar certification system. So people like Hans-Peter Schmidt are highly involved. So everybody's looking at this in real time. So we collectively build it together so it can do what we hope to do. So the answer is it works today. People are using it today but we don't expect we just sign off. We're just going to have a, a process over the next couple of years. So we all collectively uh, become happy with how it's working. But yes, people can get paid today for using it. And can I just, this is more of a, like a technical question, but is there, will there be a, a mechanism to get paid both for planting the tree for the carbon that that will sequester and for making it into biochar or is it one credit or... Does, does that make sense? At the moment, we just do credits for biochar. So one ton of biochar stored, depending upon the feedstock, is going to be X number of, of tons of CO2 equivalent that can be sold uh, and you get paid for that. But, and then the, the tree planting is, is adaptation, but it also serves as a, as a carbon stock that offsets the methane that can be produced in some circumstances by biochar if, if, the, if the biomass was not going to be burned and released into the atmosphere. So we keep that. But but EBC is working on a system whereby you could you could simply uh, get paid for the carbon in your tree every year. 
and, and Air Systems, Edward Omoa in the team has built this very nice AI tool that you can you can measure the diameter of breast height of a tree just using your phone and, and, a, and a little tag. There, and, there you are, stealing my job. I literally used to measure DBH for the California Department of Transportation so that they would offset um, the, you know, the appropriate offset for when they would clear cut um, sections of California to build highways and whatnot. Um, how do people on the ground, you, like, obviously I don't work in that industry anymore, but how do people on the ground that might have done DBH measurements or might have been the person who got called to check if the, you know, the plants were sick, how has that been kind of incorporated and received? And I mean, that's just kind of a general question for AI macro question, but how has it been in your specific case? Uh, in general, we haven't yet exposed people outside the organization to the DBH measurements. Um, we've only had our bunch of forestry team, which is about 21 people who do DBH for training purposes, see it. And um, what we do know is that it aligns perfectly, the, 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 it, it, it's as good as humans. However, humans are incredibly precious uh, and, and overstate their abilities and, and under, underestimate the abilities of machines. And so the machines will get a lot of criticism here over time, um, which is why the data should be open and transparent. So people become familiar with that. That's a critical part. So, so we need to be able to say maybe a tree of above you know, 45 centimeters is harder to measure versus one which is 15 centimeters dbh i think these are the questions which are unknown but it can't be i've got an algorithm i can't tell you what it is it has to be open and transparent i think that ultimately uh, people who do this as a job will recognize that inter-individual variability is high uh, between humans and therefore having a a, a uniform i would system. i would agree with that <laughs> And also when you're been doing it for three hours in the californian heat and you want to go and have a sandwich you <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. where you're, you're maybe not going to be as accurate as you were on the first you're, tree. You're really hitting the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> and how much do they, well, well, I mean, it probably varies by country and currency, but if folks are, you know, using this program to get paid for making biochar, can you give us a sense of like how much they're getting paid and what that income represents in terms of like, you know, percentage of average income? Like, is this something that is worthwhile to people incentivizing them to do this new thing um you know yeah. what, what go ahead the bi biochar life have a really great experience here and looking at their figures um so a typical payment in one year for biochar so so firstly i think you get about 70 dollars for every ton of biochar you put in the ground um and and about 80% of all the credit is going to the local community. So that's accessory jobs, et cetera. So really, really, you know, pro-social beneficial. A typical farmer, and 54% of the farmers are women, a typical farmer might get around about $450 in one single year from the carbon markets. In terms of her, what she might grow in Malawi, with let's say one season or two seasons, depending on where she is, she may, if she's lucky, earn... $200 from, from so, so it's all of a sudden me doubling your salary. Um, and, and, and we do know from long-term studies in Kenya, if we put biochar in the ground, then 16 years later, you still have a compound interest effect from that because it increases the soil health. So, so not only am I giving you money today, I'm helping your future productivity of the crop, which of course is extremely beneficial for carbon capture because the more plants uh, taking in carbon, the more we're, we're, we're able to put more biochar on the ground. So it's going to be this virtuous cycle, increasing 
um, wealth, but also increasing the rate at which we capture carbon. I mean, that's, I don't want to let that go by. That's like extremely profound. If someone's making $200 a year, and then you're adding an income of another 2.5 times that, um, that's incredibly amazing. And especially when you consider, I mean, obviously in our carbon removal conversations that we get into on the show, there's so much talk of co-benefits, you know, of doing something that removes carbon and then tacking on, attempting to tack on a way that it will help the people in the community. Whereas this is, I mean, probably something that I would think as education spreads, people will want to do. And the, you know, the fact that carbon is getting sequestered is sort of the benefit, um, is sort of the side thing, you know, because it's, they're doing it for income, not for, I mean, any other reason. That's That seems profound. I would say this is exactly how we got into the problem. You know, we didn't set out in, in the industrial revolution to, to get to 421 parts per million. We set out to have steam engines or factories or lights and, and the, the pollution was a side effect. And, and mm. people need something today. In that case, they needed factories and steam engines and lights. Today, they need food and, and housing and, and, and uh, clothes. The side effect is the carbon capture. And so I think we have to, to think about it that way. That's why it's people and planet, people first. Wow. And and that income would be available every year. Like you can still apply biochar to your fields every year. I'm not really an expert. Is that how it works? Yeah. You, you kind of max out above 20 tons per hectare. You can have negative repercussions uh, there, but but the, you can event you can put it into bricks. So we're also working with a company called Mava. Mm-hmm put it into bricks, you can you can make housing, you can make evaporative cooling. Um, you can have a situation where your vegetables can be stored in a biochar building. And if you have water on that building, then it gets down to eight degrees Celsius and outside is 32 degrees Celsius. So you can keep your tomatoes um, you know, fresh for, for a month instead of two days. There's a huge range of things you can do with, with biochar. Um, and so I don't think we're gonna run out of uses. That we we joke that the the biochar people are like their own group, and just every, every time you talk to them, there's like a new miracle thing biochar can do. And this is for me a new one that like you you can make a refrigerator out of it and sub-Saharan Africa. No biochar, yeah. man, you can do everything with biochar. Yeah. It seems like it's the the building block. It's the carbon. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you're worried about running out of buyers for these carbon credits. Like, what do you see the longevity of? Purchase? I mean, we talk so much about the scarcity of carbon credits versus the demand of all these buyers, but the demand only seems like it way outstrips production because production is so low. So are you concerned about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think ultimately the the, the main buyer will be government. And, and this is where, you know, with my USAID director hat, I'm, I'm trying to work towards governments being major buyers. So I'll be at the aim for climate agreement or meeting in DC which is a United States, United Arab Emirates summit, which has now 40 or 50 countries involved. Countries would be in a position to help uh, developing nations through their aid agencies like USAID, but at the same time, pay off their, their carbon debt. So if the US wants to be carbon neutral by 2050 or whatever, and, and also wants to help low-income countries increase their their their, their indexes, they could do both at the same time because, because paying a farmer to capture and store carbon improves their soil and, and at the same time is a durable form of carbon that the government can claim. So that's one, one way. And, and government just has lots more money than uh, 
private enterprises. I just see a fundamental issue. I mean, I, you know, I have a company as well. Uh, it's a profit for purpose company called Carbon for Good. And we're working on the credits and getting the money to, to the people. But when I was speaking to people at, say, Netflix and others, it's just difficult to understand how a company can spend $200 million a year on carbon credits going forward. I mean, it's a great incentive to reduce emissions, but if prices are north of $125 for durable carbon and everything else is nonsense, uh, which is what we see more and more exposed, um, then then it's just too expensive. So so we really need government to be spending on this. Um, uh, but I also think that that we need to be in verticals. We need to think about ways in which biochar can be the refrigerator or the house or the road or or the filtration system um, so that farmers can then buy it in, in different ways. In our case, we're convert, we're putting the biochar in as fertilizer, so, so mixing with manure. And since the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, there's been a tripling and sometimes quadrupling of the price of fertilizer in Africa. And so now it's a massive incentive to use biochar fertilizer that you make locally, don't import it from Russia or Belarusia. And, and, and that's fantastic because for if we put five tons of biochar into the ground, which is a good level of fertilizer, we reduce the amount of nitrogen required by 80%, which is, of course, reducing nitrous oxide. So huge co-benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, working with USAID, you're integrating governments, you're integrating local communities. Again, I come kind of to like this logistics question. Like I'm very impressed at the, at that you've made it this far and that the logistics are, are humming. How do you see this? How do you see this scaling and growing and kind of who is, who, where is the, where does the buck stop in this kind of organization? Yeah, so so there, there's no stopping of books. Um, you want you want many people to be empowered to make local decisions. Um, without this, is, I mean, certainly you don't want an European, even an Irish European, dictating what's <laughs> happened in Africa. I mean, we were we were colonized by the same people to colonize half of Africa. Um, but even despite that caveat, you 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 don't want you don't want you don't want anybody in the global north telling people in the global south how they how they should do it. So so you just want to massively empower power them. So then you want to do this through a modularized unit, uh, essentially a franchise model. So we set up or we enable uh, companies to be set up in all these countries, which are owner operated country uh, companies in the country's local youth. And then they have local decision making. And we just provide the underlying infrastructure in terms of software or developments or approaches. And then they can execute it. So it's very much like the, the McDonald's franchise model, if you've looked at McFounders on Netflix. So, so provide the, the same way to work, and then they can go and work with local communities. And the local communities must have an economic incentive, both the carbon price, but also the, the, the dividends that would come from local ownerships in a co-op. And, and, and in that way, we can get the 10 million localized pyrolysis systems, each of them pulling down 100 tons per year. And, and if we have that, we and and we're also working with all power labs in California, where we can take biomass, produce high quality biochar, but we can also produce electricity. We can also produce light. Uh, we need we need uh, and also heat. So we heat to dry material for export, better, less food loss and waste. Electricity for communities. I mean, life stops in Africa after six thirty when the sun goes down. It's mm -hmm. dark. 
And so, so and we, we're not going to have people on the grid, but solar power is great. But having biomass is also uh, very beneficial because it works 24 hours a day. What do you need? What do you need? What's, what's happening right now? What are your next milestones? What are your hurdles that you need to, to get over? How can the listeners help you and support you? I need less bureaucracy, um, for sure. Uh, I think COVID, we, 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 during COVID, we kind of took off the bureaucratic fetters, allowed us to move rapidly as a globe, and and, now, and we put them back on. I, I think, I think, I think there, there's, that's a major impediment. This is the reason why I'm pursuing the the company model, so that we can have carbon for good as a company operating like that. Um, I believe I want partners who 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 like the long game. Um, people who, who who believe in that. And, and you know, I, I don't want the VC back system. I've talked to people in, in the Koshless group and others. I've reached out to those. Um, but I, I like the idea of investment banks. Um, uh, Cisco Foundation are talking to us about investing. Uh, people who have lots of money and don't mind a 4% return. Um, who want to, you know, maybe save the planet for their children or grandchildren, or just because it's a good idea. Um, not people who want to, you know, a 30x return on this. Uh, you know, this the, the solution to climate change can't be the same as the the way in which we got into the problem. So we want economic partners who who believe in doing the responsible, correct thing for the greater collective of good. So essentially decent people. Uh, you know, <laughs> let's see how we get on. Hey, Ted, do you have any? Well, this, we've talked to a few XPRIZE milestone winners, and I mean, I am curious, would, what, what would that mean for you guys to win the grand prize? What would that allow you to do? Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's just having more money in the bank to do what we're doing today, uh, scaling, up, scaling up systems. So, so the fundamental problem is the one we've solved, local trust and local ownership. So, so given that, the, the best way is to scale up efficient pyrolysis systems and, and which are modularized. Um, I, I asked the CEO of that big company in Iceland that puts CO2 in the rocks. Um, and I said, well, why would we pay $600 to you when we could, we could pay you know, farmer in Africa $75 for, for something which is durable, a thousand years. And yeah, I get the, the, the carbon you put in the rock in direct air capture. I get that that's, you know, forever. But a thousand years ago, the, the Icelandic Vikings were colonizing my hometown of Dublin. You know, a lot has changed in a thousand years. Um, and if our problem is still this problem in a thousand years, then we're really screwed. Um, so I think that we need to scale up what works today which is which is direct air capture by plants that we then convert into biochar and and we do it in a way that that empowers the most people because everybody's got a slice of a ever expanding cake um and that's what we should be doing today and 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 so if we got the 50 million tomorrow um that's what we would do tomorrow same thing we're doing today same thing we did yesterday all right thank you everybody so much for joining us on this episode of reversing climate change and please give this a like a share if you want to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. It would be greatly appreciated. Share it with a friend because this is a really big problem. And as our guest just pointed out, it's go time. We need people to play the long game. We need them to start now. Um, please give us a like and share it around. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. 
You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com. Follow us on social media. We will catch you next time.